Welcome back to Microbiology Chapter 7. This is USMLE Listen, Spirochetes and Other Special Bacteria. Whether you're on a run or driving, this is the perfect podcast to initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. In this episode, it is all about all important spirochetes and other special bacteria. We will also go over very important bacterial related clues and information for the exam. As always, you can email us at USMLELISTEN at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared or questions on how we may improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid, Osmosis UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark LaBella and you can message me on Instagram at MarkJLaBella. So let's begin! Firstly, it's important to know that spirochetes are spiral-shaped bacteria with axial filaments. It includes your BLT, BLT, which is your Borrelia, Leptospira, and Treponema. Only Borrelia can be visualized by using your aniline dyes. Borrelia is big. And when I say aniline dyes, I meant your right RGM sustained through light microscopy due to its size. But Treponema is visualized by dark field microscopy or direct fluorescent antibody microscopy or DFA microscopy. We begin with genus Treponema, and the species that we're looking at is Treponema pallidum. Treponema pallidum is a thin spirochete and it's not reliably seen on gram stain, basically a gram-negative cell envelope, and it has an outer membrane that has an endotoxin-like lipids. Endotoxin-like lipids. Which is why we consider T. pallidum as basically a gram-negative bacteria, which you can't really see. So T. pallidum has axial filaments, which kind of serve as an endoflagella and also serving as a periplasmic flagella. Periplasmic is in it's all over the place. Think of it as a twist or a screw, twisting and drilling into a piece of wood. That is how it penetrates the tissues. You can't culture this thing in a clinical lab, but you can diagnose through serodiagnosis. It is an obligate pathogen or an obligate parasite, which means that it cannot survive outside of a human's body. But remember, it is not in intracellular. Obligate pathogen, but not intracellular. Its reservoir, of course, is the human genital tract. Its transmission is sex or sexually, and it can also be transmitted through the placenta, causing congenital infections. Two types of diseases, there's acquired syphilis and congenital syphilis. The disease is characterized by end arteritis resulting in lesions, and acquired syphilis has a strong tendency for chronicity. It lasts for a long time. Obviously, you can also transmit this through IV drug use and blood transfusions. Alright, let's go over the stages of syphilis. There are three stages of syphilis, or basically four, when you're talking about primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary syphilis, underneath the umbrella of acquired syphilis. Number one, primary syphilis. In the first 10 days to three months after exposure, you'll have a non-tender canker. It's indurated edge. It's contagious. It heals spontaneously within three to six weeks. Your patients with a canker are highly contagious, but sometimes syphilis can be acquired through blood transfusion and needles, right? So it is a possibility that there is no primary stage with it. We diagnose this through dark field or fluorescent microscopy of the lesion. In primary syphilis, 50% of your patients will be negative by nonspecific serology and may remain negative until your secondary syphilis one to three months later, which leads me to number two, secondary syphilis. So if you had your patient come in with a painless canker and the RPR was negative, that 
doesn't necessarily mean that they're negative of syphilis, right? So you have to do that dark field microscopy. Or confirmatory test. But one to three months later, you will have a positive nonspecific or specific serology tests. But by this time, this patient will have developed some other symptoms, including first of all, it may be maculopapular rashes. They're copper-colored rash. They're diffused among the soles and the palms of your feet, and they have patchy alopecia or patchy hair loss. Another symptom of secondary syphilis could be condyloma lata, which are flat-like, wart-like, perianal, and mucous membrane lesions that are very, very highly infectious. And the third could also be pustular lesions. They have pus inside of them, and they are generalized all over the body. Secondary syphilis also exhibits generalized lymphadenopathy as spirochetes invade your lymph nodes as well as your blood, causing spirotechemia. The most important thing to remember about secondary syphilis is that one to three months later, you have now entered the most infectious stage. The most infectious stage. And after the most infectious stage, you go into nothing. There are no symptoms, and that is what we call number three, the latent stage. This is when Treponema pallidum goes into a dormancy or a dormant stage. There are no clinical signs or symptoms except for the fact that your diagnosis will be positive in serology. Number four, tertiary syphilis. Tertiary syphilis occurs in 30% of the untreated, and it happens years later, at least one year after your initial canker. It's characterized by gummas, gummas. which are your syphilitic granulomas, causing aortitis and CNS inflammation, but remember tertiary syphilis can still have your secondary symptoms on top of that. But one of the things that differentiates tertiary syphilis from secondary is the involvement of your T-cell response or your type 4 hypersensitive response or your type 4 immune response. When I say type 4, I'm talking about involvement of your pro-inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tissue necrosis factor alpha causing a fever and the overall T-cell response just gets initiated. But let's talk about what the heck gummas are. The treponema pallidum or the T-pallidum has three specific antigens. Number one is your group-specific antigen, which is the antigen for all treponemas. The second one is a species-specific antigen seen in all of of your treponema pallidums. And the number three is your cardiolipin or cardiolipin. And cardiolipin antigen is present in spirochetes and the cells within our own bodies. And stay with me here because this is how the gumma formations are created. In tertiary syphilis, your plasma cells are also involved, right? Their immune response is also initiated. So these plasma cells create antiglobulins against these antigens that I just mentioned. So you have these antibodies against antigens causing and creating the gumma formation. Creating gummas and their outermost layer of fibroblasts. The gummas themselves though do not have the spirochetes and they're essentially just your immune system going haywire because of these antigens. Because this inflamed tissue is full of antibodies underneath a layer of fibroblasts, there's no supply to it and that's what causes your coagulative necrosis. With time, these gummas eventually undergo fibrous degeneration, leaving an irregular scar or round fibrous nodule. This is your immune system reacting to the spirochetes, even though it can't kill it. So yeah, your spirochetes are escaping the plasma cells and going into different systems in your body, including your cardiovascular system, causing end arteritis. And when I say end arteritis, it's essentially an inflammation of the inner lining of an artery, or your vasovasorum. And that inflammation is what causes your aortic aneurysm. The spirochetes can also go into your brain. It can cause neurosyphilis. Number one it can cause is your tabus dorsalis. Tabus dorsalis is a loss of vibration sense and loss of proprioception as the spirochetes eat away at where? 
They eat away at the back of the spinal cord or the posterior spinal cord. Sometimes the spirochetes can also attack your anterior the spinal cord, causing general paresis. Neurosyphilis has another highly specific sign, and that is your Argyle Robertson pupils, which is when your small pupils reduce in size on a nearby object as they accommodate, but they do not constrict when exposed to bright light or do not react to light. Argyle Robertson, yes, accommodate. No light reflex. Eventually, your neurosyphilis will cause your slurred speech, your lack of coordination, your memory loss, and paralysis as the spirochetes invade more and more of your brain tissue. Let's move on to congenital syphilis. First and foremost, congenital syphilis can cause stillbirth or the baby can die in the womb. But if it does survive, you can present with facial abnormalities such as regades. OMG, Mark, what are like regades? Okay, so regades are fissures or cracked linear scars in the skin, especially at the angles of the mouth and the nose. They tend to form in areas of motion and are associated, of course, with congenital syphilis. It's one of our late manifestations of congenital syphilis, such as Shaber shins, Hutchinson teeth, saddle nose, and Clutton's joints, which is usually knee synovitis. When I say Hutchinson teeth, those are notched teeth. You can have mulberry molars, short maxillas, and you can also have cranial eight deafness. To prevent this, you can treat the mother in early pregnancy as placental transmission does occur in the first trimester. Other symptoms of congenital syphilis will include snuffles, which are nasal discharges filled with spirochetes, and maculopapular rashes in the soles and palms of, of the baby. Yes, of the baby. You diagnose T. pallidum through the visualization of the organisms by immunofluorescence or dark field microscopy. You can also do serology, which is very important for two types of antibody. Number one is non-treponemal antibody or reagen or reagen, which is your screening test. The antibody, remember I mentioned cardiolipin earlier, the antibody binds to your cardiolipin. Cardiolipin is an antigen found in our mitochondrial membranes and in treponemes. The antigen itself is a cheap source of antigen, which is the cow heart, which is used in screening tests, such as your VDRL, your RPR, and your ART. The screening test is very sensitive in primary and secondary syphilis, except when it's very early. The titer may decline in tertiary and the titer may also decline with treatment, but these screening tests are not specific and you have to confirm with FTA ABS, otherwise known as your fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, which checks for the presence of antibodies to treponemopolidum bacteria. But Mark, what did those other acronyms mean? VDRL stands for Venereal Disease Research Lab, RPR stands for Rapid Plasma Reagent, ART stands for Automated Reagent Test, and ICE stands for recombinant antigen test. And number two. Way to diagnose, which is more expensive, are specific tests for treponemal antibody. They're the earliest antibodies and they bind to the spirochetes. These tests are more specific and are positive earlier. They also usually remain positive for life, but positive in patients with other treponemal diseases, such as Bedgel or endemic syphilis, which is a non-venereal endemic syphilis, causing a chronic skin and tissue disease, also caused by treponema Politum. While the venereal form is caused by Treponema pallidum pallidum, this cutaneous form is caused by Treponema pallidum endemicum. endemicum. This is morphologically and serologically indistinguishable from each other. The specific test for treponemal antibodies may have a false positive result for people with Lyme disease. The fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, or the FTA-ABS test, is the most widely used antibody test. Treponema pallidum microhemagglutination is another one, or MHATP. 
You treat syphilis or bed gel with benzenthine penicillin, which is a long-acting form. You use benzenthine for primary and your secondary syphilis, and it has no resistance to penicillin. Penicillin G is for congenital and late syphilis. Benzenthine penicillin for primary and secondary syphilis. Penicillin G for congenital and late syphilis. A crucial thing to remember about treating syphilis is watching out for the Yarish Herxheimer reaction. The Yarish Herxheimer reaction. It's a reaction that starts generally during the first 24 hours of your antibiotic treatment against syphilis or other spirochid diseases. It starts with an increase in your temperature and a decrease in the blood pressure. Again, I said it's traditionally associated with antimicrobial treatment of syphilis, but it's also seen in other spirochete-causing diseases like your Lyme disease, your relapsing fever, and leptospirosis. The killed bacteria is causing a reaction to the endotoxin-like products released by the death of your harmful organisms, and thus you have the systemic inflammatory response. Significant drop in your BP, and then and organ injury eventually leading to failure. Your prevention is benzenthine penicillin in your contacts, but there is no vaccine that's available for this. And that's what wraps it up for our treponema pallidum. Yay! The next genus is Borrelia. Borrelia are larger spirochetes. Borrelia is big. It's gram-negative, it's microaerophilic, and it's difficult to culture. There are 10 Borrelia species that are responsible for human disease, and the species that we're looking at is Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia burgdorferi's reservoirs are white-footed mice, which have the tick nymphs, otherwise known as your immature ticks, and you have your white-tailed deers, which hosts your adult ticks. Its transmission is by your ixodes or deer ticks and nymphs, and it's seen worldwide, but in three three main areas in the U.S. The tick, remember, is ixodes, and the first one is ixodes scapularis, or ixodes demini, in the northeast, for example, Connecticut, and your midwest, for example, Wisconsin. Your ixodes pacificus is seen on the west coast, and that's seen in California. You'll find that these ixodes sticks arm, but with Borrelia burgdorferi in the seasons of early summer and late spring. Borrelia burgdorferi causes Lyme disease in the Americas, while European and Asian counterparts are Borrelia garinii and Borrelia abzellii. In 2015, the Mayo Clinic found a new type of Borrelia that also causes Lyme disease, and they named it Borrelia myonii. And its pathogenesis is this. The ixodes tick, usually a nymph or an adult, attaches or latches onto human beings or, this, or their skin for 36 to 48 hours. And I say 36 to 48 hours because that's how long it takes for the tick to attach and the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi moving from the tick gut to the tick saliva and into the human being. It takes 36 to 48 hours to do all that. If it detaches before that time, there's a good chance you won't get Lyme disease. Borrelia burgdorferi invades skin and spreads via the bloodstream to involve primarily the heart, joints, and the central nervous system. Arthritis is caused by the immune complexes. Few bacteria actually invade, but the immune reaction is severe with Lyme disease, and that's what's causing a lot of your symptoms. And let's break that down into three stages. Stage 1 Early localized lesion, 3 days to 1 month after the initial bite. And you'll get something that's called erythema migrans, or a target rash that is bullseye shaped. There's a central redness surrounded by no redness, surrounded by red after that. And the area that has no redness or is clear from the redness has no bacteria. And it literally looks like a bullseye target, or the logo for the store target. Stage 2 Stage is what we consider early disseminate disease from days to 
to weeks later, the organism spreads hematogenously. You get fatigue, chills and fever, you get a headache, muscle and joint pain, and the patient will have swollen lymph nodes and secondary annular skin lesions. Stage 3 Stage 3 is delayed or persistent which lasts for months to years. It can cause Bell's palsy, headache, meningitis, extreme fatigue, conjunctivitis, palpitations, arrhythmias, myocarditis, pericarditis. Arthritis is seen most commonly in the knees and that is caused by immune complex mediated reactions. Immune complex mediated reactions. As I said, there's few bacteria that actually invade the heart for example, but the immune reaction is so severe that it causes something like an AV block which affects the very timing and chronicity of your heart. You diagnose through serodiagnosis by ELISA or enzyme immunosorbent assay, which is negative in the early stages, and you can also use a Western blot for confirmation. The treatment, of course, is antibiotics, but that is dependent heavily on the stage and age. For primary, you use doxycycline, amoxicillin, or you can use azithromycin or clarithromycin. For secondary, you use ceftriaxone, and for arthritis, you can use doxycycline or ceftriaxone. Remember to watch out for the Jarish Herxheimer reaction as we mentioned earlier with a lot of spirochetes. You prevent this by using DEET or avoiding tick bites. Yes, there is a vaccine called the OSPA flagellar antigen, but that one is not used here in the United States. And that's it for our genus Borrelia. Our next genus is Leptospira. These spirochetes have thin hooks that are too thin to visualize, but they have a gram-negative cell envelope. And the species that we're talking about here is Leptospira interrogans. As I just said, these are spirochetes with tight terminal hooks. These are seen on dark field microscopy, but not light microscopy, and can be cultured in vitro. They're aerobic, and they're generally diagnosed by serology. The reservoir is wild and domestic animals, and it's transmitted through contact with animal in urine water. The organism will penetrate your mucose membranes or enter the small breaks in your epidermis. In the United States, it's transmitted via dog, livestock, and rat urine, and it's seen through contaminated recreational water such as your jet skiers or your occupational exposures such as your sewer workers. Hawaii has the highest incidence of leptospirosis. Speaking of leptospirosis, I'm talking about the disease itself, also called as a swine herder's disease or a swamp or mud fever disease. It causes an influenza-like disease plus or minus your GI tract symptoms, also known as your whale's disease or whale disease. W-E-I-L. It can progress onto hepatitis and renal failure if it's not treated. You can break down the disease into two different steps. Number one. The first one is the immune response to the bacteremia. So you'll have a clinical manifestation such as your fever. And at this point, there's no sign of end organ damage. Number two. All right, so this is where you have your whale disease. This is much more severe and it spreads to almost all your organs. For example, the liver. It will spread to your liver, sinusoids, and your hepatocytes. Lungs. Your lungs can be affected by leptospirosis or whale disease. The leptospira go into the alveolar capillary membrane and causes bleeding in the alveoli themselves. The kidneys. the kidneys can also be affected and the leptospira go into the interstitium of the kidneys causing interstitial nephritis and causing damage to the renal tubules causing renal tubular necrosis. 
This Leptospira burger can also cross and penetrate your blood-brain barrier using its toxins. It gets into your cerebrospinal fluids or your CSF causing meningitis. And speaking of toxins, this thing has a bunch of virulence factors. It has toxins, it has lipopolysaccharides which also cause inflammation. It has adhesins that help attach to the host cells into the epithelium, your monocytes, and your macrophages. And Leptospira interrogans also has sphingomyelinase C toxin which destroys the red blood cells and it can also attack the epithelium of your capillaries causing hemorrhaging. You diagnose this through CO diagnosis or the agglutination test and you can culture it using blood, CSF, and urine available in just a few labs. You can try to use the dark field microscopy but that's usually insensitive. You treat your patients with leptospirosis with penicillin G or doxycycline. Doxycycline is usually effective for short-term exposures and preventing the disease. There's vaccines available for leptospira for your livestock as well as your pets. But an important way to prevent the spread of leptospira is controlling the population of rats. Now it's time to go over some unusual bacteria. And there's three of them. One of them is the Chlamydiaceae, the second one is Rickettsiaceae, and the third one is Mycoplasmaticiae. So real quickly, which one of the three are obligate intracellular parasites? Your choices are chlamydia, rickettsia, or mycoplasma. And the answer is both chlamydia and rickettsia are obligate intracellular parasites or RCC. Looking back to our mnemonic RCC or really chilly and cold, rickettsia, chlamydia, and coxiella. So out of the three of them, chlamydia, rickettsia, and mycoplasmaticiae, and the unusual bacteria, which one makes ATP? And the answer, chlamydia does not make ATP, so that's not the answer. It's mycoplasmaticiae, which makes normal ATP, and rickettsiaceae, or rickettsia, has a limited ATP. Remember, chlamydia? No ATP. Now which one of our unusual bacteria, rickettsia, chlamydia, or mycoplasma are unusual enough not to have a peptidoglycan layer. No peptidoglycan layer. Alright, so the answer is mycoplasma has no peptidoglycan layer. Rickettsia has a normal peptidoglycan layer, while chlamydia has a modified peptidoglycan layer. When I say modified, the chlamydial peptidoglycan lacks muramic acid. Chlamydial peptidoglycan lacks muramic acid. And is considered by some as modified, by others as absent. Let's welcome you to the family of Chlamydiaceae. The family features of Chlamydia are obligate intracellular bacteria, remember RCC, elementary or reticulate bodies, and we'll, and we'll go over those in a second, and they are not seen on gram stain. And remember, Chlamydia cannot make ATP. Chlamydia equals no ATP. And its cell wall lacks muramic acid. Chlamydia, no muramic acid. We're going to look at Chlamydia trichomatis, Chlamydia pneumoniae, and Chlamydia cetaceae. And let's begin with Chlamydia trichomatis. Chlamydia trichomatis is an obligate intracellular bacterium that cannot make ATP and it's found in cells that are metabolically active or replicating in reticulate bodies. It is an infective form and that infective form is both inactive and extracellular known as the elementary body and Chlamydia trichomatis of course is not seen in gram stains and has a peptidoglycan layer that lacks murine or muramic acid. And remember chlamydia not having muramic acid because that is going to be important in how you treat it. So let me go over these two terms very carefully. There are two forms of chlamydia and number one form is elementary body. Elementary body. The elementary body of chlamydia is the infective form. It's not really active because it doesn't multiply, but the elementary body is the one that survives in an extracellular space. And number two. 
So once the elementary priority gets into a host cell, it transforms into what's called the reticulate body. The reticulate body. The reticulate body turns into like a star looking type of form inside a vacuole. And that's what undergoes binary fission. It replicates through binary fission. It's metabolically active. And once there are enough reticulate bodies inside the host cell, it then turns into elementary bodies or transitions into elementary bodies before the host cell actually bursts open and thus infecting even more cells. Its reservoir is obviously human genital and eyes and its transmission is through sexual contact at birth and trachoma is transmitted hand to eye contact and flies. The pathogenesis of infection is non-ciliated columnar or cuboidal epithelial cells of your mucosal surfaces which leads to granulomatose response and damage. Its diseases include STDs in the United States, especially your serotypes D, 2K. Serotypes coming from Delta or D all the way to Kappa or K. This is the most common bacterial STD in the United States, though overall, when we're talking about STDs, herpes and HPV are more common. Chlamydia trachomatis can also cause non-gynecocal urethritis, cervicitis, pelvic inflammatory disease, and major portion of infertility. infertility. The host has no resistance to reinfection whatsoever. Chlamydia trachomatis can also cause inclusion conjunctivitis and with or without pneumonia in neo very specific sign is a staccato cough. Another disease by chlamydia trachomatis is lymphogranuloma venereum, serotypes L1, L2, and L3. This STD is prevalent in Africa, Asia, and South America. It causes swollen lymph nodes leading to genital elephantiasis in the late stage. And in tertiary lymphogranuloma venereum, you will have ulcers fistulas on top of your genital elephantiasis. Chlamydia trachomatis can also cause trachoma, trachoma. which is the leading cause of preventable infectious blindness in serotypes A, B, BA and C. Trachoma has follicular conjunctivitis, which leads to conjunctival scarring and interned eyelashes. You mean like eyelashes turned inwards? Gross. Why, yes, that's what I meant by interned eyelashes, leading to corneal scarring and blindness. There's no rhyme or reason on how these serotypes are named, but just for us to remember, chlamydia D to K or chlamydia dick is the one that causes STDs. The L. For L serotypes is the one that causes your L. For lymphogranuloma venereum and ABC is the one cause for the trachoma and for the eyes and the blindness. You diagnose chlamydia trachomatis through DNA probes in the United States or rRNA and the PCR. Cytoplasmic inclusion seen on the GEMSA, iodine, or fluorescent antibody stained smears or scrapings. Chlamydia trachomatis cannot be cultured on inert media, but it is cultured on tissue cultures or embryonated eggs. You can also do serodiagnosis with chlamydia trachomatis with DFA or ELISA. The treatment of chlamydia trachomatis because it does not have the murine or the muramic acid guess what? You cannot use your cell wall synthesis inhibitors which are ineffective due to lack of muramic acid or murin. So you treat it with doxycycline or azithromycin. You can prevent it with erythromycin in infected mothers to prevent neonatal disease and you can treat neonatal conjunctivitis with systemic erythromycin to prevent pneumonia. We have two more types of chlamydia to go over and they both cause pneumonia. It's chlamydia pneumoniae and chlamydia cetacei. They cause a type of pneumonia called atypical pneumonia with a few big differences. Mark, can you like compare the differences between the two? Well, let's start with distinction characteristics. First, in chlamydia pneumoniae, there is a potential association with atherosclerosis, while chlamydia cetacei has no glycogen inclusions within its bodies. 
What about the reservoirs? Oh, with chlamydia pneumonia, the reservoir is the human respiratory tract, while cetaceae is all about birds and parrots and turkeys being the major U.S. reservoirs. Transmission? So yeah, they're transmitted differently too. While chlamydia pneumonia is transmitted through respiratory droplets, chlamydia cetaceae is transmitted through dust of dried bird secretions and feces. What about how it makes you sick? Chlamydia pneumonia and chlamydia cetaceae are both intracellular organisms or, or intracellular obligate organisms but one thing that makes them different is that chlamydia pneumoniae infects smooth muscles endothelial cells or coronary arteries and macrophages cetaceae doesn't do that are the disease presentations different why yes in chlamydia pneumoniae it's called a typical or walking pneumonia it's single lobe so one lobe is affected and it causes bronchitis scant sputum prominent dry cough and hoarseness and sinusitis and that blood is caused by the blood vessel damage that I spoke earlier about chlamydia pneumoniae. While cytokosis or chlamydia cetaceae or ornithosis causes a typical pneumonia with hepatitis. Hepatitis. Cetaceae can cause hepatitis. Chlamydia cetaceae or cytokosis may or may not have cough. It may be absent, but when it is there and it is present, you'll have a non-productive at first and then a scant mucopurulent cough next. CNS and GI symptoms may be present with chlamydia cetaceae. You treat chlamydia pneumonia with macrolides and tetracyclines, while chlamydia cetaceae is treated with doxycycline. Pneumonia with macrolides and tetracycline, cetaceae with doxycycline. It's hard to prevent chlamydia pneumonia, but you can prevent chlamydia cetaceae by staying away from birds. Gah, stay away from birds. Gah. Yay! Now let's welcome the genus Rickettsia. Before we go into Rickettsia, I'm going to talk about the main infections caused by Rickettsiae and its closed relatives. The first one is the bacterium Rickettsia rickettsii, causing Rocky Mountain spotted fever. The arthropod vector is ticks, and the reservoir is ticks, dogs, and rodents. Rickettsia rickettsii, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. The next bacterium is Rickettsia proazekii, and it causes epidemic typhus. The arthropod is a human louse, and the reservoir host is humans. Proazekii is P for epidemic typhus. The next bacterium is Rickettsia typhi. The disease is endemic typhus. The arthropod is fleas, and the reservoir are rodents. Take the D in endemic and give it to the T in typhi. Rickettsia typhi equals endemic typhus. It's like totally important to know that endemic typhus is also known as urine typhus caused by rodents or caused by rats or whatever. The next bacterium is Orientia tutugumushi, causing scrub typhus. Arthropod is mites, and the reservoir is rodents. Orientia tutugumushi is a scrub, scrub typhus. The next close relative of Rickettsia is Ehrlichia. Ehrlichia can either be Ehrlichia chaffinsis or Ehrlichia phagocytophilia. The disease it causes is Ehrlichiosis, and its arthropod vector is the tick, and its reservoir hosts are small mammals. Let's go over the arthropod vectors and see if you've been paying attention. Which two bacterium have arthropod vectors as ticks? And the answers are... Both Ehrlichia bacterium and the Rickettsia rickettsii bacteria. Next question, which bacteria have mites as their arthropod vectors? And the answer is... Orientia tsutsugumushi. Final question, which bacteria has ticks as both its arthropod vector and its reservoir hosts? 
the answer is Rickettsia rickettsii causing the Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever. Another good arthropod vector that I wanted to emphasize is that the Rickettsia proezechii causing the epidemic typhus is the one closest with humans in terms of its arthropod vector being the human louse and us human beings as its reservoir hosts. The genus Rickettsia are aerobic gram-negative bacilli that are too small to stain with gram stain. They're obligate intracellular bacteria because they do not make sufficient ATP for independent life. So let's talk about Rickettsia rickettsii. Its reservoir is small rodents and larger wild and domestic animals such as dogs. And as I mentioned earlier, its arthropod vectors are ticks and its reservoir hosts are also ticks. But add to the lists of hosts including the ticks are their dogs and rodents or other domestic animals. And when I talk about ticks, I'm talking about hard ticks which are the dermacenter ticks. Dermacenter. These ticks are also reservoir hosts because of trans-ovarian transmission. Rickettsia rickettsii by itself though cannot survive outside of a cell. That's why it's an obligate intracellular. It can't make two important compounds your NAD, NAD plus stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, and your coenzyme A. It needs them from eukaryotic cells. So let's talk about how Rickettsia rickettsii makes us sick. They have lipopolysaccharides and Rickettsial outer membrane proteins, otherwise known as ROMPs. With Rickettsial rickettsii, we have ROMP A and ROMP B, which attach to surface exposed proteins or SEP, which act as adhesins. That's how they attach to our membranes. Then they use ROMPs and your SEP and they, those two attach to a protein called KU70. This KU70 binds to recruit ubiquitin ligase, causing ubiquitination and causing our own body's actin to work against us. Rickettsia rickettsii is such a bugger that it takes your own body's actin and it uses it as its own motility, means of propelling it across cells. It recruits host actin and propels it across cells, causing phylopodia. It can go so fast, it can recruit so much of our actin that it can travel up to 4.8 meters per minute. Rickettsia rickettsii invade endothelial cell lining capillaries causing vasculitis in many organs including your brain, your liver, your skin, your lungs, your kidneys, and your gastrointestinal tract. It can cause of course the Rocky Mountain spotted fever and it's prevalent on the east coast in Oklahoma, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina with a 2 to 12 day incubation. You can have a headache of 102 degrees of fever, malaise, myalgia, toxicity, vomiting, and confusion. The Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever will also cause of the rash, the spotted part of Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever. It's maculopapular and it becomes petechial. The rash starts by the sixth day of illness and it starts on the ankles and the wrists and then it spreads to the trunk, palms, soles, and face and that's what's called a centripetal rash. And when I say centripetal, I mean an inward pattern of spread beginning from your extremities towards the trunk. Ankle and wrist swelling also occur. The diagnosis may be confused by gastrointestinal symptoms, periorbital swelling, stiff neck, conjunctivitis, and arthralgias. You diagnose through your clinical symptoms and the tick bite itself, but you start your treatment without laboratory confirmation. You can do serological IFA test or the serological indirect fluorescent antibody test, which is the most widely used, and you find a fourfold increase in the titer in diagnostics. You can also do the Weill-Felix test, which is a cross-reaction of rickettsia antigens with OX strains of Proteus vulgaris. This is no longer in use, but hey, maybe they'll still ask on the test. 
You treat rickettsia rickettsii with doxycycline, and you prevent it by, of course, protecting yourselves against ticks and their prompt removal. Doxycycline is also effective in prevention for exposed persons. But before we close out on rickettsia, let's talk about two different petechial rashes that we need to differentiate with clinically. When we have a generalized petechial rash, we usually see it with a certain bacteria called Neisseria meningitidis. What differentiates that from petechial rashes of rickettsia rickettsii is that there is a centripetal movement of the rash. It starts on the ankles and the wrists, then spreads towards the center with rickettsia rickettsii. Yay! Now moving on to the genus Ehrlichia. Ehrlichia is a gram-negative bacilli that is an obligate intracellular bacteria of mononuclear or, or granulocytic phagocytes. The reservoir of Ehrlichia chifensis and Ehrlichia phagocytophila, they both have ticks and deers as reservoirs, but Ehrlichia phagocytophila has mice as well. Phagocytophila has mice. The transmission is where it differs. While Ehrlichia chifensis has lone star ticks or amblyomas, Ehrlichia phagocytophila has exodes ticks. So phagocytophila, phagocytophila joins a distinct group that are carried by exodes ticks, especially what? Especially your Borrelia burgdorferi that cause Lyme disease. Lyme disease is caused by Borrelia burgdorferi. Transmitted by the exodes tick. Additional organisms that are transmitted by the exodes parasite are also Babesia, which can cause Babesiosis, and Anaplasma, as well as now Ehrlichia phagocytophila. The pathogenesis of Ehrlichia chifensis also differs from Ehrlichia phagocytophila. Cytophila. With Ehrlichia chifensis, it infects monocytes and macrophages, while Phagocytophila infects neutrophils. So yeah, yeah, they named this kind of messed up, right? Because Phagocytophila is kind of like phagocytes, which are basically like monocytes and macrophages, but in this case, it's reversed. The chifensis is the one that infects monocytes and macrophages, while Phagocytophila infects neutrophils. Chifensis causes Ehrlichiosis, which is monocytic Ehrlichiosis to be exact. It's similar to Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever, except that this one sometimes does not have a rash. Or this one has a typical rash that is not seen on hands and feet. Does not spread to hands and feet. So with Ehrlichia phagocytophila, the Ehrlichiosis is granulocytic. Remember, Chifensis is monocytic, while Phagocytophila is granulocytic. Again, similar symptoms to Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever, and sometimes it doesn't have a rash. You will get leukopenia, low platelet counts, and more Marule. With both Ehrlichia chifensis and Ehrlichia phagocytophila. The diagnosis is also similar for both of them. You diagnose it through IFA, which is indirect immunofluorescence assay, or PCR, polymerase chain reaction, or a blood film. And treatment is also the same for both, and it's doxycycline. Doxycycline. Because it is a gram negative bacilli with a very thin peptidoglycan layer, there is no use on why we should be giving them something that attacks the cell wall, right? We need to give them something that attacks the 30S subunit of its ribosomal RNA, and that is doxycycline. Remember on a blood film, you'll see marule, which are mulberry-like structures inside infected cells. Because remember, Ehrlichia lives in either your monocytes and macrophages, or your granulocytes with phagocytophila. And just remember your clinical clues with either chifensis or phagocytophila are that the patient will have influenza-like symptoms, no rash, sometimes a rash that spares the hands and the feet, leukopenia, and thrombocytopenia. It is in the 
the same geographic range as Lyme disease. It comes out when ticks come out, spring or summer. It makes sense that it's in the same geography as Lyme disease because it's in the same geography as the ticks that they live in. The lone star tick, the amblyoma, and the ixodes ticks. On the exam, your patient will most likely have exposure to outdoors and you will see marulae inside monocytes and granulocytes on the exam. Yay! And the last family in this episode is Mycoplasmaticiae or mycoplasma in short. And this family is the smallest free-living extracellular bacteria. And here's something very important about mycoplasma. It is missing a peptidoglycan layer. It has no cell wall. Mycoplasma has no cell wall. Another interesting part is that it has sterols in its membrane. Sterols in its membrane. It requires cholesterol for in vitro culture. Cholesterol. And mycoplasma will have fried egg colonies on mycoplasma or Eaton's media. The species of medical importance with mycoplasmaticiae are mycoplasma pneumoniae and ureaplasma urealyticum. Let's begin with mycoplasma pneumoniae. It's an extracellular tiny flexible with no cell wall, as I said, and it is not seen in gram-stained smear. Its membrane has cholesterol, but it does not synthesize the cholesterol. It requires cholesterol for growth and in vitro culture. Its reservoir is the human respiratory tract, and its transmission is through respiratory droplets in close contact with families, in military recruits, medical school classes, your college dorms, and mycoplasma pneumoniae is a surface parasite. It's not invasive. It attaches to the respiratory epithelium via the P1 protein. The P1 protein. Mycoplasma pneumoniae inhibits a ciliary action. Inhibits a ciliary action. And it also produces hydrogen peroxide, superoxide radicals, and cytolytic enzymes which damage the respiratory epithelium, which can lead to necrosis and a bad hacking cough. And that's what we call walking pneumonia. This bacteria also functions as a super antigen. It elicits production of interleukin-1, interleukin-6, and tissue necrosis factor alpha. Mycoplasma pneumonia is a super antigen. The disease is walking pneumonia. It can cause pharyngitis. It may develop into an atypical pneumonia with a persistent hacking cough and a little sputum is produced. So it is the most common atypical pneumonia, along with viruses, in young adults. Its diagnosis is primarily clinical diagnosis. You can also do PCR or nucleic acid probes. Microscopy is not useful. ELISA and immunofluorescence are sensitive and specific. You will see mulberry-shaped colonies on sterile containing media. OMG Mark, like what is sterile? The most common sterile is something like cholesterol, when it's an animal sterile. When it's a plant sterile, they call it a phytosterol. Sterols are technically alcohols, but are classified by biochemists as lipids, or fats in a broader sense. Fungi also have a type of sterol and we call that ergosterol. Speaking of sterile, the mulberry-shaped colonies on sterile-containing media will take 10 days of growth. It's positive for cold agglutinins, cold agglutinins, autoantibody to red blood cells, but that test is non-specific and it's only positive in 65% of cases. So how do we treat mycoplasma pneumoniae? It doesn't have a cell wall. It's made of cholesterol, so we give and we use macrolides, erythromycin, azithromycin, clarithromycin. You do not use cephalosporins or penicillins. Duh. Like duh. The next organism in the mycoplasma TCA family that we need to worry about is ureaplasma urealyticum. Of course, it's a member of the mycoplasma TCA family, but we spread it through sex. 
sex baby, and it is urease positive. Duh, urea, urease. That should give you a clue, right? And its diseases are urethritis, prostitutes, renal calculi, and remember, urease positive, P chunks. Remember our mnemonic. It's non-gonococcal, non-chlamydial urethritis, and it can elevate the urinary pH and cause stones. That's what P chunks does, but it's not as frequent as proteus. And we treat uroplasma ureticulum with erythromycin or tetracyclines. So what are our clinical clues for the exam? All right, so let's go with mycoplasma pneumoniae first. A young adult will come in and they'll have atypical pneumonia. They'll have a cough, but it barely has any sputum production. It's mulberry-shaped colonies on media containing sterols, and it's positive cold agglutinant test. Urea plasma, urea lyticum. You will have an adult patient with urethritis, prostitutes, or renal calculi. The urine is alkaline, and it's gram-negative. And very important clue, it's urease positive. Your most likely organism for that is urea plasma, urea lyticum. Before we end the chapter, we're gonna go over some zoonotic bacteria. Very important for the exam. The first one is anaplasma. Anaplasma causes anaplasmosis, and its source and transmission is the ixodes tick that live on deer and mice. Anaplasma causing anaplasmosis on the ixodes tick. The next bacteria is Bartonella, causing cat scratch disease and bacillary angiomatosis from scratches by your kitties. Bartonella causing cat scratch disease and bacillary angiomatosis from your kitty scratches. The species Borrelia burgdorferi causing Lyme disease, and that's also from your ixode stick that live on deer and mice. Borrelia burgdorferi Lyme disease ixode sticks. The next species is Borrelia recurrentis. The disease that it causes is relapsing fever, and that's seen in human louse, human lice. Ew, I hate lice! <laughs> well, you may very well hate lice, but it's recurrent due to its variable surface antigens. Borrelia recurrentis, relapsing fever by the human lice, or human louse. The next species is Brucella. Brucella causes brucellosis or undulant fever. And Brucella usually comes from unpasteurized dairy. Brucella causes brucellosis or undulant fever by unpasteurized dairy. Our next species is Campylobacter. Campylobacter causes bloody diarrhea from feces of infected pets or animals and contaminated meats or foods or hands. Campylobacter bloody diarrhea from feces. Chlamydophila cetaceae causes cytokosis. The transmission are your parrots and birds. Okay, fine, but we have to, like, tell them what psittacosis is. Psittacosis is otherwise known as parrot fever or ornithosis, and it can present a systemic illness with severe pneumonia or atypical pneumonia. You can get, like, stupor or coma with psittacosis. Okay, yeah, but this is supposed to be an abbreviated review of zoonotic bacteria, so let's move on. Chlamydophila cetaceae, psittacosis, caused by parrots and other birds. Our next species is Coxiella burnettii. One of our RCC obligate intracellulars, this causes Q fever, and its transmission and source are your aerosols of cattle or sheep amniotic fluid. And when I say aerosols, it's in the air. Coxiella burnettii is in the air. Coxiella burnettii, Q fever, aerosols of cattle sheep amniotic fluid. 
Q fever is one of those diseases that have like flu-like symptoms and like abrupt onset. Other signs and symptoms of Q fever include atypical pneumonia, which can lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome, and you can also have like a GI symptoms. You can also have like granulomatous hepatitis with Q fever, but the most important thing is that the chronic form of Q fever is virtually identical to endocarditis. Chronic form of Q fever and endocarditis. The next species is Ehrlichia chaffinsis, causing ehrlichiosis, and that is transmitted by your amblyoma or your lone star tick. Ehrlichia causing ehrlichiosis by the lone star tick, also known as amblyomas. The next species is Francisella tularensis, causing tularemia, transmitted by ticks, rabbits, and deer flies. So it's like important to remember that tularemia is also known as rabbit fever and can cause fever, skin ulcers, and enlarged lymph nodes. And that's also mentioned that with all six characteristic clinical variants, ulceroglandular is the most common form of the disease, which is 75% of all forms. Yes. Francisella tularensis, causing tularemia, transmitted by ticks, rabbits, and deer flies. Our next zoonotic bacteria is Leptospira, causing leptospirosis, and it's transmitted through animal urine in water and recreational water use. Ew, it's transmitted through rat urine. Ew. That is true, and it's also important to remember that in leptospirosis, symptoms can range from none to mild to headaches and muscle fevers, meningitis, jaundice, kidney failure, and severe pulmonary hemorrhaging. Leptospira, causing leptospirosis, transmitted through animal urine and recreational water use common in Hawaii the next zoonotic bacteria is Mycobacterium leprae. Of course, that causes leprosy. And even though a big, huge percentage of leprosy transmission is through humans, you can also see leprosy or Mycobacterium leprae in armadillos. That's like totally rare, but it happens. Now let's move on to Pastorella multicida, causing cellulitis and osteomyelitis, transmitted by animal bites from cats and dogs. Pastorella multicida, causing cellulitis, osteomyelitis from animal bites, cats, and dogs. The next one is Rickettsia proezechiae, causing epidemic typhus, transmitted from human to human via your human body louse or lice. The P in epidemic and the P in proezechi should help you remember that Rickettsia proezechiae causes epidemic typhus. Can we just remind ourselves that typhoid and typhus are like two totally different things? An epidemic typhus due to Rickettsia proezechiae is spread by body lice and its symptoms are like fever, headache, and rash. Rickettsia proezechiae, epidemic typhus by human lice. Our next species is Rickettsia rickettsii, causing Rocky Mountain spotted fever and spread and transmitted by your Dermacentor tick. The R in Rickettsii should be the R for your Rocky. Rocky Mountain spotted fever starts with a fever and headache and then develop a rash that starts on your wrists and ankles. And then long-term complications are like hearing loss and like loss of a part of an arm or a leg or whatever. The rash is like centripetal, that means it goes inwards. Rickettsia rickettsii, Rocky Mountain spotted fever by the Dermacentor tick. Next species of zoonotic bacteria is Rickettsia typhi, causing the endemic typhus, and that is spread through fleas, specifically the fleas on rats. Rickettsia typhi, endemic typhus from fleas. 
Next one is salmonella species, except typhi causing diarrhea, maybe vomiting, fever, abdominal cramps from reptiles and poultry. And the last one is Yersinia pestis, which causes plague spread through fleas on rats and prairie dogs. And that about wraps us up. Remember, repetition is key to stay in your memory. And that concludes our episode of Microbiology Chapter 7 here on USMLE Listen, Spirochetes and Other Special Bacteria. As always, you can email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid, Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow me or message me at Instagram at Mark J. Labella. See you on the next episode for your auditory learning here at USMLE Listen.